Today I'm speaking with Dr. Emma Serres, who is a Senior Lecturer in Social Work and Policy Studies at University of Sydney. Thanks for joining me, Emma. Thank you for having me. Yes. I would like to know a little bit about yourself, because I did read an article that you had co-authored with Nicole Moulding from South Australia University. So I'm interested about your background. And uh, were you, did you grow up in Australia? Yes. Yeah, so I live in Sydney, as I have all of my life, actually. So I'm currently living on and talking to you today on Gadigal Country in Sydney's inner west. I'm really interested to hear about your work, and I I think you're quite passionate about the work that you do. So, yes. Thanks. So, yes, in my role, I'm responsible for a combination of teaching and research, And a key area of my work is social perspectives on mental health. So this can be summarised really as a big picture perspective or a holistic approach to understanding mental distress. So I'm really interested in unpacking some of the social drivers of distress or some of the connections that we can draw between mental distress and what is happening in people's lives. So biological factors in mental distress play a role, certainly, but mental distress doesn't arise in a social vacuum. So I'm really interested in the connections between things like housing, adequate or inadequate housing, poverty, abuse and discrimination. And I'm also really interested in women's mental health and the connections between mental distress and gendered violence. I'm also really interested in human rights in mental health and how people experiencing mental distress can be supported to exercise more autonomy over their lives and for us to develop services that really start to address the social circumstances of people's lives rather than what tends to be offered to many people, which is a diagnosis first and a medication first response. Yeah, it's very interesting that you say that when I was reading your papers prior to us chatting, I was interested in you talking about mental distress, having been involved in the mental health sector for a long time it seems that this sort of terminology or this sort of thinking is a newer way of thinking and away from the very medicalized model of how we view people with mental illness that's right yeah so I tend to use the term mental distress it's I don't think it's a perfect term either but it's an attempt really to have a broader perspective than say using the term mental illness which is really about locating a dysfunction within an individual person and not addressing those social factors that can be so important in helping us understand how the mental distress has arisen and also what kinds of things might be helpful. Mm, mm. And uh, and labelling seems to be something that happens a lot within the medical model And I know that some people find the labelling being given a diagnosis as very helpful, but equally it can, over a long period of time, be quite limiting when a person starts to view themselves only through the diagnosis rather than uh, through the skills and other abilities that they may have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we can understand labels as double-edged, so having some useful aspects. Uh, labels labels can be validating, but often only in the short term. Mm-hmm. They can result in access 
to resources and help us to understand a little bit about what might be going on for a person and potentially for us to express some compassion towards a person. But it really encouraged us to see the problem as located inside the individual and the person is somehow dysfunctional or disordered and it stops us from seeing the kind of unjust social conditions of people's lives and and that bigger picture perspective of what might be going on that might help us to understand the distress and the distress has been meaningful and located in the social context. Mm. And I'm really glad you've said that because I think that's a nice introduction to our discussion today, which we came to because I'd seen your article that you'd written with Nicole Moulding from South Australia. And I was really grateful to read that article uh, because I'd had a conversation with another woman, an, uh, an intelligent woman, and we were talking about what had happened uh, with allegations against Christian Porter. Mm. And she said to me that possibly the woman who was bringing those historical allegations pro- probably couldn't be believed because she had a mental illness. And I was horrified. And so for me, my my really first question is, from your research, can you tell me why many people in our society, women and men alike, may view a woman that has experienced domestic violence, abuse and rape and judge them as not to be believed when they tell their stories? Yeah, so this is a really important question and... I don't think that any one simple explanation is sufficient. I think it's really complex and there are a number of factors that we need to consider. Um, I think we need to start with thinking about patriarchy. So the fact that we don't live in an equal world, but rather we live in a society that clearly in a range of ways is set up to benefit men and provide men with a range of privileges and to cast men as dominant over women and entitled to use their unearned social privileges in a range of ways. So this is not to say that all men do this, so many men reject this notion, of course, but on the whole, it's still how men are being socialised within a contemporary context. And this comes to the great cost of women, of course, and also uh, to people of non-binary genders. So really, patriarchy is a system that is based on the idea and really requires us to believe that there isn't a problem. So really it requires us to consider that male dominance, power and entitlement either doesn't exist or if it does, it's not a problem. So perhaps it's natural or it isn't actually a problem. So I think what happens when women disclose gendered violence is that there's quite an affront to this notion that there isn't a problem. So when women disclose, they're asking us to take their stories seriously, their experiences seriously, and to accept that there really is a problem of gender inequality in our society and the status quo has to change. And in fact, massive social change is required. And this is a pretty uncomfortable scenario for us to sit with. And recently we've seen women disclosing as part of a collective and a social movement and so we're seeing many women come forward with their experiences and so it really is an affront to this idea that there isn't 
something wrong and that things don't need to change. And so I think that's part of uh, the reason is that it's uncomfortable and it requires great social change. I think we also have really strict ideas about how disclosure is meant to happen. So it's meant to be timely. It's meant to be entirely coherent. Women should be distressed, but not too much. They should never have contact with the offender again and so on. And these ideas don't often reflect the complexity of women's lives. They often don't account for the power relations that are involved in gendered violence and the messiness of how disclosure happens. Mm. And finally, thinking about my research in particular at the intersection between gendered violence and mental distress, many women who disclose violence have a diagnosis of a mental illness. And this diagnosis can be weaponized against women as a reason to not believe them. And this is a huge problem because often women are distressed because of the violence and then this is this distress is a reason that is used against women to to not take their disclosures seriously and really this is embedded in some very stereotypical ideas about mental illness diagnosis and notions of irrationality or that people with a mental illness diagnosis can't be trusted mm-hmm. so i think it's yeah i think it's complex and yeah there's a lot to this question of uh, why we're so often not able to take women's disclosures seriously. Yeah, so I hear you saying there's historical context to how women are stereotyped, but in terms of women who, and you were talking about the complexities, obviously, about not supposed to see the person again and all of that sort of thing, but a lot of domestic violence happens within relationships and partnerships where there may be children or power imbalance and financial imbalance and it's very hard for a woman to uh, make the decision to leave a situation like that especially if they don't have the skills to get a job or they haven't been in the workforce or they don't have any money saved up it's quite as you said quite complex for for women but I wonder why and uh, I know that you've discussed it a little bit but this inability to hear a woman's story particularly women who have mental illness, does it just come from those societal constructs or is there something else at play? Yes, I think femininity for a really long time has been seen as consistent with irrationality. And so this idea was used, of course, against women who, you know, during advocacy and trying to be given the right to vote, you know, oh, we can't possibly give women the right to vote because they can't make rational decisions. Um, So there's a really long history with these ideas. And because of that long history, they can be really hard to undo. And I think when we look at this history, it makes sense that some of these ideas are still present in notions of femininity today, although perhaps in a more subtle way. Mm -hmm. And so for women who also have a diagnosis of a mental illness, the stereotypes about femininity and mental illness collide and in some ways create a perfect storm for disbelief. Mm -hmm. But I I understand that the data says that women who who have a diagnosis of a mental illness or have a disability are are much more vulnerable to uh, being taken advantage of or uh, being abused or experiencing domestic 
and family violence. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, there's, yeah, we can, we can think about multiple reasons for this. And so, unfortunately, some offenders or people who use violence will use a woman's mental illness diagnosis against her. Uh, so it can be a form of gaslighting. You know, like nobody will believe you because you have this diagnosis. So that's, that's one area that we can think about. Uh, we can also, in thinking about some of the kind of connections between people's experiences and the development of mental distress, it makes sense that many women who access mental health services with experiences of distress, some of that distress you know, has arisen in the context of gendered violence. Mm. So, these, yeah, these overlaps are, are very clear. Mm. What are the implications for women who have experienced trauma and how does it impact women who are the most vulnerable in our communities who are living with mental illness and or a disability? Yes, I think the broad social disregard for women who disclose violence uh, and not taking these disclosures seriously... Uh, can have devastating impacts for women. It can contribute to or exacerbate mental distress. And actually, mental health services themselves are not well equipped to respond to women who are presenting with mental distress in the context of violence, even though this is a really common scenario. So often, mental health services will not ask women about their experiences of gendered violence, or if they do, they may not take those disclosures seriously or see those disclosures as really important in helping us understand how the mental distress has arisen. And actually, some abusive partners may use the mental health system as a way of further abusing women. So, for example, creating doubt about her credibility because she's been given a diagnosis and thus undermining her further. And so this is a really terrible situation because often women's distress has arisen due to the context of violence and then this distress is used as a reason not to take her disclosure seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for women who have an existing mental illness diagnosis or other disability, it can really contribute to them choosing not to disclose or delaying a disclosure. And I think this is really understandable and well-placed fear, actually, because you know women are aware of of how their disclosures might be responded to. Mm, mm. Well, as you said, it makes it hard for a woman to think about disclosing, particularly if she's had a previous difficult experience when approaching and seeking support or engaging with perhaps the police Mm. or some other uh, institution that uh, perhaps, because the changing, I suppose, the changing role of the police in our societies is something to be thought about. Initially, the police were there to catch the bad guys, but a lot of their work now does involve attending violent situations in the home. Uh, and I wonder, is that part of the problem? Do our police force and some of these people who are engaged in the system, who may have their own perceptions around uh how people are supposed to engage, how women are supposed to behave. Is there a need for education or training? Uh, What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I would add to that that we need to look at kind of multiple intersections 
that can disempower women. So if we think about First Nations women, culturally and linguistically diverse women, women with diverse sexualities, women experiencing poverty and so on, there can be even more barriers and reasons for these women to, to fear disclosing or accessing services because of the response that they might receive. Mm-hmm. Whilst many in our communities understand and accept that mental illness can affect anyone through the many mental health awareness raising campaigns over the years, have those campaigns actually altered deep-seated attitudes and removed discrimination that may lay at the heart of these perceptions of women with mental illness and disability? Yes, I would say no as the short answer, that mental health campaigns don't go far enough. So firstly, they often offer quite neat versions of mental distress and help-seeking and recoveries. This can stop us from exploring some of the messiness of seeking help and recovery, as well as the many things that can be useful in recovery um, beyond mental health services. The mental health campaigns, for the most part, are, are nearly always about underpinning biological factors to explain mental distress. And that means that we remain unable to explore social factors Mm. and mental illness remains something that is seen as just biological. So, you know, for women, there's no social context, no discussion of the gendered factors. The notion that mental distress just arises without understanding social circumstances I think this is problematic for lots of reasons. I think it actually contributes to the idea that people with a diagnosis are unpredictable. If we start to discuss social factors, then we can start to make sense of distress and see distress as meaningful. Also, these campaigns do very little to help us to think about different ways of responding to distress. And so I think we need more understanding of human rights in mental health and ways of responding to distress that don't use coercion and don't re-traumatise people. Mm-hmm. So there are many alternative ways of responding to acute distress that don't involve coercion that have been developed throughout the world. And these campaigns you know, very rarely kind of explore any of this. So I'd like to see a campaign about mental health and social justice addressing social determinants, thinking about things like the housing affordability crisis in Sydney and many parts of Australia, uh, the job seeker rate, addressing gender inequality. These are the kind of underpinning social determinants of mental distress that are so rarely explored in mental health awareness campaigns. Mm. My experience has been that although... Attitudes and awareness of mental illness broadly has changed. But that doesn't remove a person's perception of how others should appear or react or behave. So I'm talking about discrimination. And what I hear you saying too uh, about the environmental factors and uh, the inequities that women's, women in general, but also women who have a diagnosis of a mental illness or a disability or who have experienced trauma, maybe they haven't shared that they've experienced trauma, but uh, they seem to be much more discriminated against in, in getting work. Most women are not being paid an equal 
pay rate. We don't see women rising so much to the top. We don't have enough women in the workplace. There's lots of issues around equality. And I wonder how the discrimination is linked to that equality itself. Now we back to those social constructs about what women should be doing and how they should be behaving and views of what women should be behaving as in terms of their femininity and and their roles? Yeah, this is a really important question. I think you're right. There's still a huge amount of othering of people with a mental illness diagnosis. I think in part that's because we're stuck in the biological model. Mm -hmm. So we're not seeing mental distress as a kind of meaningful and understandable human response often to overwhelming life circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think if we shift towards seeing distress as meaningful, then we can stop trying to fix people mm. and approach distress in a different way. Mm. Um, I think you're quite right around those gendered expectations that are still, still huge burdens for, for women in our contemporary context. Mm. In one of the articles that you sent me, you talked about the DSM-5 manual having more and more disorders. We seem to be adding more and more disorders to the list. And I've recently had a really uh, interesting conversation with my GP where she was talking about having situational anxiety or Mm -hmm. situational depression, but that it can go away because it's the situation you're in that actually affects you without saying, oh, here, take this pill, that'll solve your problem. Do you think that we're going, that there's still too much of a push to actually put labels on people as if that's part that's the big solution and we can sort of you know that's meant that oh they're fixed or is it something to do with how we fund mental health Mm. that we need to have labels in order to get support yeah great question i would say absolutely we're still far too reliant on labels as a way of understanding and categorizing distress Certainly in each version of the diagnostic manual, there are more and more disorders. And, you know, with the recent COVID-19, people are starting to discuss a new diagnosis around pandemic-related mental distress. And so, you know, some people do see more labels as a good thing because maybe it means that more people are able to receive help. I really worry because diagnostic labels invite a medical response Mm. through what is often better understood as social or human challenges. Mm. Mm. And I think since the National Disability Insurance Scheme has been rolled out, we've seen less of a focus on recovery for people with mental illness and exploring ways that people can recover. And uh, obviously women are in that, that group of, of people who may need support to recover, but actually recovery being the goal rather than mm. getting a label, getting support, and then somehow or other having someone maybe being able to get an NDIS package. I'm not saying mm. that it's not a good thing to have mm. that kind of financial support, but it seems that I feel almost like in some ways it's a bit of a trap and we're, the focus on recovery has shifted uh, yes, it's all more like being institutionalised in the community. Yes, I, I think you're really right about that. So I think a diagnosis can really invite a kind of fixed identity. Mm. Uh, so we're not talking enough about recovery and 
resilient and that things can change. The diagnosis also sort of invites medication as being a first line of treatment and very little can end up being done to change a person's social circumstances or address the things that may be contributing to the distress. And it can really encourage a deficit lens, so really focusing on difficulties and not sort of seeing a person's strengths. And so a lot of the people who I've spoken to in my research, you know, have said, yes, that label was helpful in some ways. I was able to access a certain resource, but then I wanted to give the label away, you know, and it was hard to do that because health workers and others were sort of fixated that that was my identity. And unfortunately, it can lead to discrimination. Mental illness labels can even lead to discrimination in health services. So I've spoken to people who've been trying to access support around physical health. There's a mental illness diagnosis on their file. As soon as the practitioner sees that, everything then gets seen through that mental illness lens. Mm. And it can be really hard to access support for their physical health, which is just a terrible outcome. Yeah, and I suppose that's back again to that discussion that we'll be having about women who've experienced trauma. Mm. If you come in to the police station to report or the police attend a situation and you tell them, oh, I've got a diagnosis of something, there's a subtle shift in how they view you rather than recognising that this person needs perhaps, they're traumatised, but they've also already had these other experiences and perhaps we need to sort of be more thoughtful in the way that we manage this. But it it does set up uh, really difficult situations for those persons you're absolutely right, yeah. Mm. The discrimination is, is huge. So is disclosure of having a mental illness a double-edged sword? Yes, uh, it is, yeah. And, and that going back to the mental health campaigns, I suppose that complexity is not there. So, you know, people are encouraged to seek support, uh, to receive a diagnosis, you know, without that complexity around, you know, the implications of receiving a diagnosis, there can be some some negative implications. Mm -hmm. So that sort of takes us back to what I said this friend said about how uh, this woman has brought allegations against Christian Porter and yet she might not be believed because she has bipolar disorder. Mm. It's quite disturbing how does that play out, you know, ultimately in the whole way that, that she accesses support or she accessed support. She's She obviously, even in trying to access support, she wasn't able to feel that her issues were well, well understood and sadly she took her own life, leaving those people her friends and family behind to fight the cause for her it's just quite diabolical I suppose Mm. Mm. after what we've witnessed with the rape allegations in Parliament House many women feel that there is complacency and political game playing around creating real change many see that the most commonly used solutions involve shifting the blame onto women further labeling them as somehow dysfunctional and or just shuffling women off to services rather than addressing the underlying social and societal issues. In your opinion and from your research, what needs to change so that women can feel safe, be heard equally and equitably and receive the support they so desperately need to heal? Yeah, great question. So mental health services need to change. We need to bring a gender lens to understanding women's distress. I think we need to not jump straight 
straight to label, working towards understanding the social context, addressing social drivers, as well as providing empowering and non-coercive responses to distress. So there's a lot of work to be done in mental health services. In addition, I would say if we are truly concerned about women's mental health or in fact anyone's mental health, as a society, we need to seriously address gender inequality. And so, you know, ideas about male dominance and the gender binary are harmful to everyone's mental health. Certainly women's mental health, but also men. So, you know, the kind of idea that men can't be nurturers, you know, these ideas that men shouldn't be too emotional and so on are actually very harmful. And when we look at some of the risk factors for men's mental distress as well, we see that around situations of divorce and redundancy, men experience high levels of mental distress at these times. So we see the impact of gendered expectations on men is very harmful as well. And of course, the gender binary is also really harmful for non-binary people also. So we need to do a lot to improve mental health services, but I would certainly say that that can only go so far and that we need to kind of look more broadly at society and gendered expectations and um, the harms that they have put on all of us. Mm. I think many of us were quite horrified that Parliament House in particular, they fund domestic violence services through federal health and yet not to have appropriate procedures uh, through which to support someone and for that, uh, for women in particular to feel that they're safe to come forward. Do workplaces need to look at how they are addressing issues around sexuality in the workplace and how men and women and, and other, and you were talking about gender issues, but how we all interact? Do people need to be having a broad discussion about what is put in place so that people feel safe in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the context you were talking about, you know, really those power relations, unequal power relations need to be addressed. Workplaces that are unsafe for women clearly need to be addressed. And I think we need to, I guess, stop this sort of siloing approach where we see, you know, mental health as this kind of separate issue. It's actually all intertwined. And as we address social justice issues, including women's rights, then that will have flow-on effects to women's mental health. Mm. And one of the things that I I was thinking about uh, when we first discussed this was about the issues with male-dominated and male-directed workplaces and whether women are working in those systems or not. If it's a patriarchal workplace, do women to survive in that workplace take on that behaviour as well and seem to be less empathetic towards other women who are experiencing difficulty in the workplace? What are your thoughts Is this a key issue in terms of women in the workplace where there's very high level, powerful workplaces? Do we need to do some work in that space as well? Yeah, look, I think the ideas of, you know, male dominance and patriarchy, we all live in these kind of these communities and contexts where these ideas are prevalent. And so it makes sense that women take these ideas on as well. So it is really about unpacking these assumptions across the board. Yeah, and I suppose some people might have a perception that feminism is somehow uh, a lot of butch women uh, sort of standing up for their rights and so forth. But what is feminism really all about and, and uh, 
how could feminism or feminist theory assist in making change in some of these workplaces and in societies to make them safer for women? Yeah, I think you've touched on an important point there. I wouldn't want to speak for what feminism is because it's a diverse community. But I think some of the values of feminism around equality, around freedom from violence, when it comes down to it, many of us uh, can agree with those values and hopefully, you know, can see the, the, the value of what feminist thinking has to offer. Mm. We might shift gears a little bit and I'd like to ask you about the DECRA project that uh, you're involved in, reducing gendered harm in involuntary mental health service provision. Yeah, so this is a new project, the three-year project that I've just started. I'm looking specifically at women's experiences of involuntary mental health services. So the question that I'm asking really is about the impacts of compulsory mental health treatment on women and also what might be some alternative ways of understanding and responding to women's mental distress. And I think we've, in this conversation we've been able to unpack some alternative ways of understanding women's distress that moves beyond biomedical explanations. And so in this project, I'll be actually recruiting people very shortly, looking at women who have experienced involuntary services, as well as families and loved ones, uh, and also mental health workers who are employed in these contexts. I'll be doing an initial phase of interviews and then working in a longer-term way with action research groups. And so in these groups, we'll be aiming to co-design gender-sensitive approaches to responding to women's distress. And the project is enhanced by the employment of peer researchers, so women with lived experience, relevant lived experiences, who are co-facilitating interviews with me and co-analysing the data and and using lived experience to enhance what we're able to to achieve in the project. Mm. In here you say women who have experienced coercive psychiatric practices. Do you want to expand on what that might mean in that context? Yeah, so coercion is is really around services that people receive that they don't consent to. And we can think here about, you know, the unfortunate situation where people are turned away from services that don't sort of meet eligibility criteria and so on. This can lead to people experiencing more and more distress and then the very unfortunate situation where uh, they might receive a service that that they don't agree to. And this can have harmful effects for many people. But if we look specifically at women's experiences, there can be re-traumatising impacts if women have experienced violence or other forms of abuse and then a compulsory mental health service. There can be very harmful, detrimental impacts of this. And so the service that's set up to support women can actually cause harm. And so I'm really interested in different ways that we can respond that are effective, but also reducing that coercion. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I'm aware of is that uh, often there isn't enough separate space if we're talking about adult mental health units that women are often placed into rooms or near rooms of male patients and they're not in a separate section where they might feel safe. Is that part of the problem or are we talking about a broad range of challenges that are faced when women are perhaps 
uh, involuntary or voluntarily in a unit such as that? Yeah, that's a that's a huge issue. It's not the only issue, but the lack of options for women to access segregated space on mental health units can leave them in unsafe situations. And so women do experience uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault on mental health units, which is obviously incredibly harmful. There are other sort of gender dimensions that we need to think about. Uh, so women's identities, you know, if they're mothers, the importance of kind of responding to that identity, not ignoring it, and taking into account women's identities as mothers, not seeing them inherently as sort of risky mothers, which can happen as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's just yeah, a huge range of areas that we need to kind of bring that gender lens to, to understand you know, how to respond in effective and respectful ways. Mm. And I suppose this is also important for the LGTBIQ community as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of evidence that mental health services are really ill-equipped to respond to diverse sexualities and genders. And often people will experience a disrespectful or a response that's inappropriate. There's a huge amount of work that needs to happen in that space as well. Mm. And I'm just thinking back to what we were talking about before about women or um, people having, uh, because of their particular who they are or whatever, or that they might have a mental illness diagnosis. Does that play out as well uh, for uh, people who have got LGBTQ communities? Are they also impacted by the, being both lesbian, gay, queer or transgender is their experience as significant as the experience of women who have mental illness, particularly if they themselves also have a mental illness? Yeah, I, I think, yes, yeah, certainly we can see some overlap. So the, the impacts of homophobia and transphobia on people's lives, you know, can contribute to really understandable mental distress. But mental health services, you know, again, will kind of jump to the label you know and not understand that broader context and then this can be sort of further harm can happen if if insensitive questions are asked around sexuality or gender or partners are not being sort of adequately included so so this can create lots of reasons actually for for people to choose not to access services in the first place Is there anything else that you think is important for us to add? I know that you're, you've got your project that you're going ahead. Are you looking for people to participate in that? I am actually. So, yes, recruiting very shortly. So if there are uh, any women with experiences of compulsory treatment or families and loved ones uh, or indeed mental health service, service providers working in that space, then please be in touch if you're interested to participate. I think to conclude, I'd just go back to the point about valuing lived experience. So really, I've just learned so much from listening to people's narratives about mental distress uh, and also experiences of services. Mm. Um, people who are using their lived experience and really working tirelessly as part of the consumer and service user survivor movement to work, work towards change in how mental distress is understood and responded to. So I guess I'd just encourage those listening to continue to be open to and value lived experience 
I think understanding complexity and diversity is so important. So just being open to learning from a broad range of experiences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and a full examination, as you say, really we need to bring a, a, a societal wide lens to some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That, that wide view is so important. It it is a complex area. I just, but I feel I have to say I it's very complex area, but I feel that we really do need our policymakers on side to yep. actually assist with making some of these changes or being willing to step outside of some of the the dominant paradigm in order to to see what possibilities there are to address many of these issues. Yeah, I completely agree. I think. We need to spend more time and effort on prevention and addressing some of these social drivers. Mm. But I also hear you saying, as you said, we need to listen more to what people are telling us rather than thinking through. And I think a lot of this is about perceptions and how we view people and and some of that bias, I suppose. Yeah, the the othering is huge. Yeah, not even perhaps even being aware that that thinking, how we're thinking is is stereotyping particular people, mm-hmm. but being able to go beyond that and really hear what the person is saying is really critical for perhaps the person's recovery and the sort of support that they get. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, thank you very much for the discussion today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Uh, good opportunity for me to get some of the research out there more broadly. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no, and thank you too, Emma. Really no appreciate worries. it.